Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Uh, as we did last week, we're having a little uh, speculation about Star Trek Into the Darkness. A little spe- it's actually a little speculation update. Right. So last week we talked about the trailer and we threw out a whole bunch of what-ifs. And a few of those what-ifs have been answered for us. So we were just going to spend about five minutes, give you an update, and then uh, jump into episode 100. Yeah. And starting off... I'm- there was such secrecy around all this stuff, and then they had the, the you know the the first trailer coming out, and now you can go to the movie theaters right now, and you can see uh, the first nine minutes of the uh, of the of the movie if you go to an IMAX and and watch the the Hobbit. But the Hobbit. so, but now it seems like a lot of information's flowing. I mean, not everything, but it just seems like there's a good flow of uh, information, at least since uh, our last recording last week. Right, so uh, let's just rattle through them real quick. So uh, John Harrison is now the name of the character uh, Benedict Cumberbatch is going to be playing. Yes, space terrorist. Who is not a name that that we might be familiar with. No. So, again, that could still be a mislead. We don't know for sure, but... It probably isn't, though. I mean, but, but Cumberbatch himself has said that he's playing a terrorist... And he has extraordinary physical powers, but also mental powers. So maybe he's not quite human? Or he's an enhanced human. Perhaps a product of eugenics. A eugenic Superman. So maybe he's, you know, the guy that was in the uh, the pod next to Khan on the Bonnie <laughs> Bay. <laughs> Perhaps. Right. So, I mean, it's possible. It's uh, possible. I still want to throw out, you know, I still like my, uh, you know, Peter Weller playing Paxton again, and because uh, from the Enterprise, and him somehow being an offshoot of that, because in that episode, Paxton did want to create a Vulcan-human hybrid that would have all the uh, enhanced physical, physical and mental powers of the Vulcans into a human. So I'm still, I'm still holding on to that. Well, it also said that it's ha- that there's some kind of link between. Didn't didn't somebody say there's some kind of link between Spock and him? I, I, I know there's supposed to be a link between Kirk and him, but yeah, right. And also, uh, there are lots of photos on the web. If you do a Cumberbatch Star Trek search in Bing, uh, you get a bunch of photos brought up. Some of which are, you know, him as Sherlock and that kind of thing. But it does show a lot more photos from the movie than I've seen before on the web. And there's uh, like three or four, actually five different photos that show uh, Spock nerve pinching and just generally uh, physically fighting with Cumberbatch. And it looks like there's a scene where he might have, ne- you know, tried the Vulcan neck pinch. But then Cumberbatch just grabbed his hand and pulled it away. Right. So, of course, I'm not sure the order in which these photos actually run in. But there's one scene where Spock clearly has him neck pinched. And there's another scene where that same hand that he neck pinched him with, Cumberbatch uh, is pulling away from his uh, body. Hmm. I'll have to look those up. I haven't seen those. Right. So... So anyways, he, he's, he's enhanced still, if he can do that. He still sounds like Khan or he still sounds like Gary Mitchell. So, I mean, 
Gary Mitchell could have also done all that stuff, except Gary Mitchell wouldn't need the guns and stuff, which we've seen. Exactly. He he would be even more super. That's the ridiculous thing about uh, Gary Mitchell. I mean, when he w- I mean, you don't know what he fully became before he got crushed by the rock, which I still wonder, if you're that enhanced, would you really be crushed by a rock? I don't know, but whatever. Right. Uh, I mean, he was just so powerful, he'd, he'd be even more powerful than what uh, Cumberbatch looks like. Right. So anyway, so the name John Harrison, that's his name, supposedly. Um, it It's uh, an interesting name. It, it is. I mean, doesn't it kind of sound like uh, like the fifth Beatle or something? I don't know. Or the love child between John Lennon and George Harrison? Oh, could be. <laughs> could be. All right. All right, and the other big uh, reveal was that... Uh, Alice Eve is, or is that her name? Alice Eve? Yeah, I think, I think so. you're right. I think you're right. Alice Eve is playing Carol, Carol Marcus, Marcus. Which is so cool. Yeah, so I, like I said, I've always wanted to see Carol Marcus. I wanted to see her in the last movie, and I was really hoping that she was playing Carol Marcus in this movie. So right. at least one of my uh, big hopes for this, this movie has paid off. Right. And I think it also ruins one of my uh, off-the-cuff theories that we recorded in the uh, the last update. Oh, yeah? Which when, one was that? It was the one where I was saying, uh, whoever she is, she's Kirk's love interest, and she's going to get killed by Cumberbatch through his nefarious uh, plans or whatever, or deeds. Mm-hmm. And that, odds are, uh, it could, but odds are, Carol Marcus is going to be around. Yeah, well, you would also think Vulcan would still be around, and yet it's not. <laughs> <laughs> well, you ne- you never know what curveballs this new re- uh, reset is going to have, but uh, I think Carol's going to be around. Hmm. So I think I'm probably wrong on that theory. At least half of it, anyway. Obviously, right. I am half right, because it definitely is Kirk's love interest, but also half wrong, because I do think she's going to be around a few movies. Right. That's about all to, uh, with this update of latest breaking news. So hopefully some of us or one of us will watch The Hobbit this weekend or this week, and maybe before episode 101 we'll give a little recap of those uh, seven or nine minutes. Yeah, and I will just mention quickly that somebody we both know has actually seen the first nine minutes. Yeah, so maybe we'll give him a ring and see if maybe he wants to come in and chime in. Exactly. And the only thing I just want to mention is that he mentioned the first nine minutes were really good. As you'd expect. Yeah. Hopefully. Hopefully. Uh, I don't want it to be a stinker. Well, at least we've got one generic comment saying it's awesome. Right. Yeah, he liked The Hobbit, too, so it's it's, it's a win-win. Yeah, it is good. All right, so enjoy episode 100, and um, we'll talk to you soon. Later. Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 100, three digits, recorded October 25th, 2012. Episode 100, did you ever think we would get here? 
No. Um, quite frankly, when you first mentioned the idea, I didn't think we'd get to one. So <laughs> the fact that we're at a hundred now, I am, I am happy. Good. Happy. Yeah, and, and uh, I was a little worried that our attention spans might have waned before now, and uh, <laughs> we would be off doing other stuff. But uh, I, I'm glad we're still here, and you know chugging along with uh reading some old dc stuff and then today we're going to dip into some newer stuff with the ongoing excellent yes so I, ongoing 10 through 12 all right i think that's you know at least from my point of view uh i think this has helped uh jumping around and doing different things whereas if we would have tried to do all of gold key straight through uh, i'm sure we would not have made it no uh, and that was the that's that's my main thing, I think. Because when we started doing the 90s, DC 90s, those are pretty good comics. Mm-hmm. So uh, a far cry better, typically, <laughs> typically, than the Gold Key. Um, and uh, better than a lot of the Marvel, Marvel stuff, too. Uh, not all of it, because some were the, pretty good. but Right, the older Marvel. We haven't really older. gotten into... We did do some of the newer Marvel stuff with uh, the new vo- early voyages with the Pike. Those were pretty good. Yeah, the, those were pretty good. That's, but we've been hitting the the '90s, which has had some very good writing, very good writers, good art, art artistry typically. So that's good. That's good. Right. Um, that, that that I think that helped. <sighs> anyway, yep. so so just to uh, not discourage you in any way possible. Okay. If we keep going and doing three issues a week. Or an episode, and they stop making Star Trek comic books. <laughs> we should be finished in uh, the next uh, 160 episodes or so. Wow, that's discouraging. <laughs> but it wasn't intended to be discouraging. It was intended to be give you something to look forward to. Exactly, and it, and it's good to have a, a checkpoint along the way. <laughs> no, it is. I mean, I think a uh, hundred is a major achievement. So it's nice to know we're over a third. So right. that's good. Yep. Yep. Thumbs up there. Yeah, but they keep cranking out new ones, so it's always going to be this moving finish line. <laughs> well. Uh, but anyways. So. anyways, so yeah, so we're doing. Uh, this is our fourth ongoing episode. So we've we've now had the ongoing series for a year now. So right. this will be the uh, the first year of uh, Star Trek ongoing by IDW. Right. And uh, I'm liking it. It's still taking some episodes of the old show and kind of putting them in a new twist, or at least these three are. Yes. Uh, where they're kind of new and kind of – they're more inspired by uh, old episodes as opposed to a straight adaptation, don't you think? It depends upon the story arc and which one they're redoing. Right. But uh, yes, uh, especially the Tribble one is quite different. I mean, really, the only thing common about it are tribbles. <laughs> really. True, true. Well, okay, there's Klingons around, too. But, you know, a lot of it's just tribbles. Other than that, it's very different. Right. Whereas the return of the Archons was, you know, it was it was somewhat close to the original, but it, it went in a completely different direction. It was kind um, of inspired by. Right. Well, I think the Archons was a little closer to the original TV series than the Tribbles one, but I guess yeah. you could... That's just splitting hairs, I suppose, but... Right, yeah. De- definitely, I agree with you. 
the the triple ones is way out as right. opposed to the TV show because there's no Deep Space Six or whatever it was. <laughs> deep Space. It was there was no Deep Space. I don't what it was. It, they just call it Space Station, right? No, I thought it was called Deep Space. Space Station K K five K something. Okay. I don't think they call it Deep Space though. You're right. Deep Space. Whatever was was in another episode. So did they actually use the term deep space in Taz? Uh huh. Right. They did. They did. Okay. Okay. Cool. Okay. How about with uh, with no further ado, unless you have some business to discuss, let's uh, launch into issue ten. No, yeah, let's do it. All right, let's go. Uh, as you'll recall uh, from a while ago, this is part two of the Return of the Archons adaptation, and this is uh, issue number ten. Uh, ongoing IDW publisher. Publish date is June 2012. The creative team includes writer Mike Johnson, which he did his work based on the original teleplay by Boris Sobelman, based on a story by Gene Roddenberry. Artist Stephen Malnar, colorist John Rausch, letterer Neil Yukitaki, editor is Scott Dunbuyer, and creative consultant is Robert Roberto Orkey. The regular cover presents a large Starfleet swoosh symbol, as many of the issues do, in the middle of it, and within it is Spock in a bulky cloak with a hood obstructing about 30% of his face. Cruising across the swoosh is the Enterprise with green mist apparently coming out of her ample nacelles. Part of Kirk's head and upper torso is visible in the bottom of the cover. He is in some kind of medieval outfit with chain mail, a brass shoulder plate, and leather. Pretty cool looking, actually. Across Kirk's torso is the issue title, The Return of the Archons, Part 2. The alternate cover, RI-A, is a black and white version of the regular cover. And the last alternate cover is RIB, and is a portrait of uh, Chekhov from the chest up. Um, again, a photo cover. The light source is coming from Pavel's left, causing ch- shadows to fall across the right half of his face. Since it has been a while since we've discussed part of the story arc, the comic is a reimagining of the Toss TV episode Return of the Archons, complete with the black robe population of Planet Beta 3. This issue picks up as Kirk continues to recount to Admiral Pike the tale of their visit to Beta 3. The narrative picks up in the middle of an attack on the planet's surface. Kirk and Sulu are in native garb, carrying an unconscious member of the landing party and firing phasers set to stun at a crowd of black-robed people as they close in. Spock is firing with one hand and Vulcan neck-pinching with the other. Pike is not happy with them firing phasers on unarmed civilians, but Kirk says they were still set to stun, and there was an awful lot of them. The view of the battle site pans back to show the landing party in a massive room, where they look like a handful of ants surrounded by a mob of hundreds closing in on three sides. Their sole escape route is up to an altar, and behind the altar is the awe-inspiring sight of the remains of the USS Archon. The saucer section is vertically embedded in the ground, with a large conduit coming out of the bridge and down into the ground. 
Smaller conduits are coming out of that large conduit and running to the ship's two nacelles that are also partially buried in the ground. More conduits are haphazardly running to a spot behind the altar's wall, which is where the computer that we were introduced to in the last issue was located. Kirk asks for options. Spock says options are limited. They establish McCoy and crewman Enright are no longer with them. They hope they are safe on the surface. Spock tries to call the ship for an immediate beam out, but the signal cannot get through. They make their way to the altar stairs and out onto the street where Spock suggests a beam out to discuss their situation from a safe location. With a fresh set of attackers heading their way, Kirk agrees. They make their way to the site of their beam down, and on the way, Bones calls to them from a very high tower. They go up and join him, where they meet the lovely Ariel. She says she is one of a handful of town's inhabitants left that are not under the spell of Landru. She quickly gives Kirk the planet's rundown. All the people here are descendants of the original Archon crew. The few not under Landru's control were either born and raised that way by free parents or in rare instances rescued by someone who was already free. Landru is no longer a man, though once he was the brilliant head of Starfleet's advanced research division, and his name was Cornelius Landru. He and the Archon were dispatched to establish one of Earth's first deep space colonies. His invention was a piece of artificial intelligence that was meant to help the colony grow and thrive. It turns out his true intentions were just the opposite. He intended to build an experiment in population control. He wiped the colonists' minds and reprogrammed them to be obedient cattle to take part in a utopian society where Landru was God. When his true plan came to light, the crew of the Archon tried to stop him, but Landru's tech had become so powerful it pulled the ship out of the sky. The only surviving members of the crew were on the planet before the attack. Some managed to stay free while others succumbed. The mind-wiped colonists began a simple agrarian existence. They developed a religion that worshipped Landru and used the remnants of the Archon to build a temple to him. The lawgivers were appointed to make sure no one violated the tenets of obedience that rule the world. After Landru's eventual death, his machine carried on his work to this day. Scotty is able to finally contact them and tells them the ship is being dragged towards the planet by some kind of powerful ground-based tractor beam. They only have a few hours before they are crushed to the ground. Kirk orders him to beam the landing party up. They convene a strategy session around a transparent aluminum table. Scotty restates, at the rate that they are going, they have two hours before they hit the surface. At first they discuss firing on the Landru machine from orbit, but since it's underground and a town with people in it is just above, the idea is scuttled. Kirk comes up with the idea to beam the central unit out of the cavern. Rip Landru's heart out, he says. Kirk says they can beam it to an Enterprise cargo bay. Scotty says it will be difficult given it's embedded in solid rock, but Chekhov is down with the idea and thinks that removing it will free the Enterprise. The meeting ends 
and most head out to execute the plan. Spock and McCoy stay behind with Kirk to bring up potential issues. McCoy is concerned over the population being adversely affected if the thing that has controlled them their entire lives is ripped out. Spock says he is concerned that going to Beta 3 was their own idea and not part of a mission. Their main mission is to explore, not engage. He suggests it would be more prudent to free themselves another way and report back to Starfleet. The Archons would not be going anywhere, nor would they be in any worse danger than they have been up to this point. Kirk questions Spock bringing up the Prime Directive in a discussion about a Federation colony. Spock makes the argument that in, in the spirit of non-interference, they should apply it to the situation. Kirk thinks about both of their arguments long and hard. Then he turns to them and says decisively they are both right. In a perfect world, they would have the time to figure out another way to release themselves, inform Starfleet, and get further orders before taking action against the Landru artificial intelligence. But they don't have the time. If they don't do something right now, they will crash and lose the crew. He will not let the Archons add pieces of the Enterprise to their temple. Scotty and Chekhov are given the word to proceed. Between Chekhov's coordinate calculations and Mr. Scott's transporter wizardry, they are successful in transporting the computer core to the Enterprise cargo bay. The Archons, enthralled to Landru, sense his sudden absence and mill about in confusion. Ariel, in an appealing dark blue miniskirt, goes to Captain Kirk for confirmation that her people are free of Landru. When she saw the ship was rising to a higher orbit, her hopes were high. Later, Chekhov, Kirk, McCoy, and Spock are staring at the Landru computer core in, a, in the cargo bay. Chekhov is marveling at how such an advanced computer could have been deposited on Beta-3 hundreds of years ago. Kirk says he hopes Starfleet Command can shed some light on that mystery. Ahura informs Kirk they established a communications link with Starfleet Command. The story comes back to the present, as Kirk concludes his telling of the events on Beta-3. Admiral Pike chastises him for going off on his own and chasing a thin story like that of the Archon, but then commends him for the good job he and the crew did. He tells Kirk that they will take over from here and assures him the survivors will be taken care of. Kirk thanks him, but goes on to ask how an Earth colony, the Archon, and Cornelius Landrew could all be missing from Starfleet records. It's like someone wanted the ship and all on board to disappear. The Admiral tells Kirk that it's his problem to deal with, and that Kirk has, a, has his new orders. He tells Kirk to check with him next time he feels like chasing down a myth. Kirk says he will, and terminates the connection. Almost immediately, Pike receives another call. Pike takes it. The voice on the other line says hello, and that they see he was just in contact with the Enterprise. The voice on the line says that Kirk has made a big mess of the situation. The Landru experiment has been going on for decades and took a lot of effort to remove all the records of the Archon and everyone associated with her. All that work is for naught now because of Kirk. The voice tells Pike to keep Kirk and his loose relationship with Protocol under control. If Kirk slips up again, he will hold Pike personally responsible.
the end. Huh? Pretty good. Yeah, not so, uh, it, not, not so lily white is this uh, Starfleet and perhaps the Federation. Hmm. Yeah, I liked how in the first issue it was the possibility that Sulu was, you know, approached by some other organization. Yes. And uh, may or may not be a member of this, you know, uh, Sector 31 or whatever it, it is in this continuity. Right. And then at the end of the this, this series or the end of this two-parter, come to find out, Pike is also part of it. To some degree, yes. Right. He may not know all the details, but he knows something's going on. He probably knows some of it, but higher-ups above him are pulling his strings. Right. Which is interesting, because from the movie, it's like, well, Pike is God. I mean, (laughs) come on, he's Captain Pike. Maybe when he went to Admiral, maybe he was briefed on a few things. Or maybe he knew it when he was Captain, who knows. Sure. Yeah, so, and it's still vague. It's still vague on how much Sulu is in the loop. Right? Exactly. He, it, it may be everything we saw. He, it, maybe he didn't take on that job. Right. Um, but then again, maybe he did. Yep. So, know. you know, so obviously they're reinforcing the um, the J.J. Abrams mystery box approach. So we definitely got a, definitely got a mystery going on here. Right. Which we will continue to be given breadcrumbs about for uh, the next 50 issues, and then we'll be disappointed in the ending. <laughs> in the mystery. No, no, no. Uh, you know, this, this will probably be much better Was than that lost. A, a lost reference? It was a lost reference. <laughs> no, no, I, I'm sure this is going to be great. But I am interested to see what they do with this. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like that they're, you know, again, they're not doing the original series, which was, you know, you hit the reset button at the end of every episode. You know, they are, you know, threading in some plot points that they're leaving open by the end of the story. Right. So that they can pick it up later. Right. And another thing that's not the same is definitely, kind of mentioned it before, is the Starfleet is not as squeaky clean as it was in the Toss world. Right. Now, it got a little more realistic, as I think we discussed before in Deep Space Nine, uh, when we found out about Section 31. Um, right. Which was cool. I mean, I, I kind of liked that. There was kind of, there was some, a bit of naivete um, in the original Starfleet and Federation. I mean, they were really good guys. I mean, really good guys. So, <laughs> um, between Insurrection, that showed that they could be doing things if they had to, uh, that were uh, not, not squeaky clean. The right. multiple things that Section 31 did during the... Uh, Dominion War and Deep Space Nine. Um, I think this is kind of interesting. Yep, it's it's good. Did you happen to notice that 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 shot towards the beginning where you see the Archon stuck in the ground? Mm-hmm. That the saucer section's writing is totally backwards. <laughs> oh, that's a good point. Yeah. So normally, when you look at the saucer section, the top of the saucer, saucer section of any Starfleet ship, you see that it's it's oriented outward, so that like if you're looking at it from the top uh, down, you know it's you know the NCC 1701 whatever is right. oriented where the bottom of the letters are facing outward towards the outer edge of the saucer section. To make it easier to read, 
<laughs> with it stuck in the ground, they flipped the uh, name and registration number of the Archon. Yeah, I was wondering if maybe it's supposed to be the underside of it, but I've never noticed the writing like that on the under- underside. I-, I don't think they have writing like that on the underside, do they? Well, they do, but it's like out towards the the sides in smaller letters. So, no, you're right. It's definitely supposed to be the bridge. Right. Not the not the underside. No, right. good point. I, I did not catch that. Yeah. Well, it just it just looked out to me, and I took a closer look. It's like, oh, oh, they flipped it. Huh. Huh. No, I'm still – I was still a little steamed that it's the, you know, an NX-01 era type saucer section with uh, the new movie era nacelles. So yep. that's what my focus was on that, that picture. Yeah, and not only that, when we get a better picture later, you know, when she, when Ariel – and by the way, wasn't she the Little Mermaid or something? Anyway, yeah. So, not this one, but uh, there is an Ariel that's the Little Mermaid. <laughs> okay, it just I just couldn't get that out of my head. Um, <laughs> but they actually – they have a, a shot or two in the comic book of the intact Archon, mm-hmm. and it is cool how it looks like the NX-01 Enterprise from the TV show Enterprise – Again, though, like you say, just a little bit more spindly nacelles that look like the 2009 movie. Don't like it. Enterprise. Yeah. I, I, yeah, it just I, – I, I like it because they're, they actually brought in the Enterprise. Sure. I mean the NX-01 uh, right. from the TV show. So I love that part, and you could tell it is. I mean mm-hmm. there's no, there's no uh, engineering section, or maybe the engineering section is really tiny. Well, you know. You know how it's set up. Right. Um, anyway, but the main point is, but then they got those uh, those blasted 2009 movie era uh, nacelles on them that don't look that much different. Uh, I agree. Right. Yeah. No. On that part, uh, I was very happy that they at least attempted to do that because if you remember when we did issue number eight, that was my big complaint when I saw the saucer section was that it should have been Archer era type ship. Um, right. And then so when when you actually see it here in this comic. Well, that's cool that you. It does look a lot like the NX Zero One, except for the nacelles. Yeah. Why do you have to have the a more modern looking nacelle, and it's still supposed to be over a hundred years old? Right. <laughs> and you know, it all comes down to um, you know they also wanted to make you make sure you know that it was the new continuity. You know, this is not the TV show Enterprise continuity, so it has to look different in some way. I just well, I, mean, I disagree it, with you that it looks a little bit too much like the uh, the more modern Enterprise nacelles. You disagree with me? You think it looks too much like the modern Enterprise? I think the nacelles do. Yeah, I do too. I don't, yeah, I don't that's, like that's it. What I, that's what I was trying to say if I didn't oh, okay. use the right words. I thought you were saying you disagreed with me. N- no. No. <laughs> no. I, I, I 100% agree with you, Donovan. Oh, good. I love it when you agree with me. <laughs> no, I, and I mean, if you want to split hairs about the new continuity, I mean, the continuity split when Nero came back in time, which mm-hmm. would have been after the Argon oh, had already crashed right. for a good 70 yep. years. So You made a good point. That's a very good point. You may, you may have made that last time, too. Yeah. They should have really made it look exactly like uh... – Archer's Enterprise. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. I get changing the nacelles a little bit because it is supposed to be, you know, a, a few, you know, models of the ship later than the Enterprise NX-01, but still, it shouldn't look like 
the Enterprise saucer section and then the 2009 Enterprise's nacelles. It's so, like they had a weird little love baby, those two ships. <laughs> exactly. And, and and I got to ask, I mean, they must have realized that. Yeah. So they made the decision to draw it this way, just even though it's inaccurate, just to cause less confusion? Or they just like the style better. I mean, it is artistic choice, right? I mean, they, they, no, yeah. they, they there they, is they the can, whole but... artistic license, so I'm not going to fault them too terribly much. But the nitpicker of me wants to that, you know, that, that's not right. That, that shouldn't be there. Well, that is nitpicker, and you are Mr. Nitpicker. But the more I think about what you've said, the more I think you're 100% right, and it's annoying me, too. <laughs> but you know what? I mean, you want to say that they make the TV show or the movie to you know, try to get as much of the fan base as possible, not just you know, uh, cater to the hardcore. Right. But, I mean, let's be serious. How many casual Star Trek fans are buying these comic books? I mean, I would imagine I that if you're buying this comic book on a monthly basis, you're probably somewhat of a of a loyal fan and and would would not be confused by it looking you know almost spot on like the n x zero one yeah i I know I did not notice that, okay, so your point about why the Inter- the archon should have looked just like. Uh, if it was supposed to be from the Archer era, then it should have looked exactly like Archer's Enterprise on the TV show. I, I did not think about that. Right. But uh, since you brought it up, that's 100% right. And I, I think I think, you're, I think you're right in that they probably said, well, what's most people going to think makes more sense? Even though it doesn't, if you think about it enough. And that's <laughs> what they went with. So just stop thinking about it. Just, just exactly. Enjoy. Just enjoy. Just kick back and enjoy the ride. <laughs> and by the way, I hope there's a lot of young kids that saw the 2009 movie and dig it, and they're getting these comics. Yeah, I would so, hope so. I would hope so. And, and and those are maybe kids that are young enough that they never saw Next Gen. Yeah, good. Never point. saw Taz. Those kind of things. So I hope there's there there's those kind of folks out there too. All right. Good point. Good point. Building up another generation of fans. Yeah, because, I mean, like, I, like I've told you in the past, I, I never really got into Taz when I was a kid because right. it looked too hokey. It didn't look like the movies and the, <laughs> the TV, uh, the next generation. So. Yeah. Well, by the time you came along, youngin', um, it was kind of an old show. It was. It was just, yeah. you know, slightly better than Lost in Space. Slightly. <laughs> to my young young eyes it was yes it, it was no star wars yeah well yes that had the benefit of another uh decade of technology improvement and money right <laughs> yeah yes even though uh the original star wars was made for an, an amazingly small amount of money well, and all the Star Trek movies were made for almost no money. I mean, if you look at well, the no, budget... No, 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 Look at the budget for the original movie. Star Wars that, or Star Trek The Motion Picture? Star Trek The Motion Picture. Okay, yeah, you're right. That one was big. That cost a huge amount of money because they originally, Paramount, you probably knew that, know this, but maybe other people don't, um, 
Paramount, seeing the success of Star Wars, wanted to create its own in-house special effects department. So uh, Paramount tried to do the special effects uh, with their own in-house thing. Spent a huge amount of money, got nowhere, and that's when they got together with George Lucas and got uh, ILM to do it. Yeah, I had heard that. Yeah. So, you know, they they paid almost double <laughs> for the special effects. And there were a lot of special effects. But they got to reuse all those special effects over and over and over again. <laughs> Watching that guy wave as the Enterprise leaves over and over and over again. <laughs> same guy. Same guy, same special effect, yeah. <laughs> uh, and they got to reuse the uh, the theme for next gen, so hey. Oh, yeah, that's right. They even got to reuse that. Right. That's funny. All right, so uh, back to this comic. You were talking about the cover or the main cover. Mm-hmm. You didn't mention that Spock's there doing his uh, uh, Return of the Jedi Luke Skywalker imitation. I did not see that in that picture. Oh, really? No. Even with the the way the hood is kind of obscuring part of his face, it looks, to me, I just see Mark Hamill's face in there while he's walking into Jabba's palace. <laughs> that black coat. <laughs> Choking the Gamorreans. Again, uh, (laughs) I think your stronger mm, obsession with Star Wars franchise is showing through. Oh, I got to nip that then. (laughs) Because didn't Spock, didn't he have a cape like this? Star Trek motion picture. No, uh, in the Archon. Oh, in the Archons. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. I I, I think he had a cloak and and a black hood. But um, but yeah, this one's this one's kind of a charcoal gray. Nice material it looks like, and yeah, I suppose it looks like like Luke. But I do agree Jedi, with but... you on on Kirk's outfit. I, I do like the chainmail and leather garb that he's wearing on the cover, which he's yeah. not actually wearing in the issue. No, no one wears anything like that in here. <laughs> <laughs> it looks cool. He should have done that in the in the in the book. Right. I think it looks very cool. Yeah. Uh, it makes it more look look more, more medieval, though. Right. Which is... Yeah, and his face, too. He looks like he came from a, like a Conan or Lord of the Rings type movie. Just uh... his expression and stuff. It looks... It, it's a good painting. Yeah, it looks yeah, like a it's, movie. It's cover, very good. But yeah. not for a movie of Star Trek. Exactly. And, <laughs> the, and the, these covers, uh, what, Tim Bradstreet, Tim I guess, Street, right. is doing them, and I think they're pretty good. Pretty doggone yep. good. Ah, yep. uh, let's see. <laughs> on page 13, and I counted them because there's no page numbers on this. It's annoying. Mm-hmm. Scotty states, even the maneuvering thrusters are of no use whatsoever. Uh, or, or, or of no use whatever it is. So it was like, that kind of bugged me because it's like, maneuvering thrusters? Is it? I mean, maybe maneuvering thrusters are different uh, in the 23rd century or whatever. But... Mm-hmm. um. Those are the weakest. I mean, maneuvering thrusters are meant to maneuver you in space where there's no resistance. So right. it's like it just shoots air out, you know, gas or whatever. And uh, it, it's not a lot of power. Right. Yeah. Just just enough to nudge you so that you can line up with the space station or, or exactly. whatever you're docking. Or with. whatever you're doing. Right. Um, yeah. Right. So I thought I thought that was an odd statement to make. Um also, did they did they ever actually call it a tractor beam that was pulling the Enterprise down? In or they the, just called it in the book? Because I don't think they did. I think they just called it some 
energy or, or, beam or something like that. Well, yeah, some yeah, some strong something or other. Whatever it is, uh, Scotty was surprisingly not very technically precise <laughs> for an engineer uh, in in right. how he described things in this. Um, anyway, and which is another thing I want to talk about, Scotty. Once we get to the uh, Tribble episode or Tribble, yeah. Tribble com- comics, um, yeah. Scotty is definitely. Definitely not the same man as in the original show. Anyway, but let's 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 get back to this. Um, so I just thought I just thought that was odd to say. Uh, no, I agree. You know, well, why didn't you use impulse engines, right? You know, you, you you couldn't use warp drive, of course. Although, really, wouldn't you think if if you're being dragged down and you had your shields up and you kind of you know use thrusters, <laughs> maneuvering thrusters, to like point you away from the planet? Mm-hmm. And then just said, warp one, baby. You know? I don't know. Wouldn't it, wouldn't that do something? Oh, well, maybe maybe it would blow, make the ship blow up. I don't know, but anyway. <laughs> or make you go into a, a weird wormhole. Uh, wormhole something. Exactly, like in uh, <laughs> in in the mo- in the motion picture. There you go. Right. Anyway. So so there on page fourteen, while we're while we're open up to that page. Yes. Um. Or at least I think it's fourteen. I'm guessing um, that that oh that there's a shot of the Enterprise within some clouds. Is it supposed to show that the Enterprise is that far into the atmosphere? atmosphere? Uh, it does kind of make it look like that, doesn't it? Right. And typically, the Enterprise is far above any clouds. Exactly. Well, on the page before, you know, it's way up there. I mean, continents yeah. still look like you know, you could still see definition of different continents right. on the planet. But then on the next page, it looks like, oh, it's already in the atmosphere and, and, and it's on its way down. Yeah. Well, maybe that is the feeling they wanted to give you or something. I don't know. But I don't know. Then go a couple. Look, it's of, in the clouds already. Then go to the next page and you can see the the curvature of the Earth still that they're that they're way up there still. Oh, really? Let me look at the next. Yeah, one. just flip the next page. Oh, right, right, right. I see that. So I think that's just a, an odd drawing there on page fourteen. Right. Kind of like how in in the old. 50s Superman show, when Superman was flying, you would see all the clouds. You know, they always showed the clouds going by him, and then he would look back, and Earth is like a little speck. Right. You know, and then shows the side view again. You still see clouds going by. I know. There you go. Because there's clouds in space. Exactly. Exactly. Think these things through, by the way. And since we're on these pages, Mm -hmm. uh, I'm looking at this uh, this conference table, and it's looking just like what I have in my backyard. You know, big sheet of glass on top of a pedestal kind of thing. And I was thinking to myself at first, how cheesy. You know, a, a glass tabletop. It's like, oh, oh, but this must be transparent aluminum. <laughs> and uh, you'll notice in the next issue when we get to it, uh, they got rid of the uh, the transparent conference room table. But let's wait till we get there. <laughs> I did not notice. Yes. Uh, I, I think the I think they made it transparent because they did a few nice things with some of the artistry, art, artistry work. I think. So that, right. that's, well, that's I mean, nice. if all your women are wearing those short skirts, I don't know if Good point. a transparent uh, conference room table would be the most appropriate thing. Wow, that's a very good point. And unfortunately, Ohura is all the way at the other end of the table. Damn, yeah, can't see a thing. Chekhov sitting right in front of her, and and oh, and look where he's looking. Aha! Nice, <laughs> Chekhov. You dog you. Which, by the way, I have something to comment on the next 
issues cover, but let's let's move on. Okay. All right. Uh, my last comment as far as this issue goes is um, Landrew. They really changed his motivations, the, the human Landrew. Yeah. If I remember correctly in the TV show, he really was a good leader, and he, he, he programmed the computer <clears throat> to – you know, try to make a paradise, not not brainwash all the citizens right. of the planet to be, you know, mindless automatons. I mean, my remembrance of that show was that he, you know, because he wasn't going to live forever, he programmed, you know, this computer to try to, you know, hold true his ideals. And then over time, those ideals got corrupted and the computer saw everything in black and white and started making everybody into mindless automatons. Right. I think you're right about that. So he gave them the, uh, the goal or the computer, the goal, but right. how he got there, it sounds like the computer went on its own uh, way on that one. Right. So I, I didn't like that. They turned Landau into, or Landrew, excuse me, into this evil, evil scientist guy right well you know they dressed him all they do is dress him up like a like dr horrible and you know with the white the <laughs> white doctor coat and everything and he's set yeah he had it he had it all he needs is those big old goggles which he didn't have but oh and the the big rubber gloves oh good point and no freeze ray so <laughs> okay let's see i disagreed spock when he said their mission is exploration only. Because I thought Pike said that Starfleet is a peacekeeping armada. And I believe in the 2009 movie, they engaged Nero like crazy. So Well, he was attacking Vulcan and Earth. I agree. I'm just saying that uh, I think Spock's point to try to get them to go with the non-interference thing. Uh, I, I don't necessarily agree with his point about their mission being exploration only. Because mm -hmm. how often are they doing runs to colonies to, um, you know, to have medical checkups or supply runs oh, yeah, or, point. you know, that kind of stuff. So it's not just explore, exploration. But good point. Good point. I thought. And another thing I'm wondering about, since Spock was doing so much of the full court press about, you know, maybe we shouldn't be screwing around with these guys and just find another way to, to get out of the uh, the free fall and, you know, go and report back to Starfleet. Right. He was he was pushing that pretty strongly. So I'm sure he doesn't, but it just across my mind is, does he know something here? Oh, that he's in on it too? Uh, right. Mm, so, good point. Just cross my mind. But he is Spock. Yeah, I, sh I hope that's not the case. So. Right. Well, I think they were. I think I just thought that they were trying to push the a conflict with the prime directive or alluding to it. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah, and Spock came right out and said, "Well, actually, Kirk said you're applying the prime directive to a, a Starfleet colony." But right. And by the way, should it be Starfleet or should it be an Earth colony? I it mean, depends. It depends on when. Well, when exactly. So. So I was saying, was the Federation there yet back then? I don't think so. Um, well, Archer was the first president of the Federation, so you would think, you know, that last episode of Enterprise was, you know, the 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 part that wasn't, you know, the flash forward or whatever it was. 
it was them signing the all the planets signing the Federation Charter Articles, or whatever. Charters, right, right. Yeah, so, I mean, if the Argon... Archon. Got, yeah, if it got lost after that, then it would have been a Federation vessel. Sure. And since uh, it's yeah, NCC, it's... I assumed it was Federation. Does NCC mean Federation, or just means it isn't... Uh... Oh. Well, I, it isn't experimental anymore. So, so right. good point. It obviously is after um, the time where Federate, I mean, beyond when uh, starships were experimental. Right. So beyond the NX timing. Anyway, I just, uh, I just didn't, I didn't, I, I yeah, well, whatever. I just didn't think it would be a Starfleet colony, but who knows? Maybe it was. Right. Yeah. Who knows? If it, it, right. One or the other. Depends right, on right. when when it was sent, whether it was before or after the Articles of the Federation got ratified or whatever. Right. Good point. That's what I got to say. So there on the last page, did you, did you notice that Pike is still in the wheelchair? Yeah, I think I think Pike... I, I may be wrong about this, but I think that's one characteristic of the original Taz Pike that we knew and loved from um, the Menagerie episodes. I think he's going to be in that freaking wheelchair for, like, forever. Yeah, I think so, too. Yeah. Although, when I watched the 2009 movie, I didn't get that he was going to be in that forever. I thought that was just kind of a while-he's-recouping type thing. But I thought I guess, the exact guess, same thing. I guess it is going to be a permanent thing. Yeah. So, unlike Wrath of Khan, where the little uh, buggy guy that takes you over can just be spat out, like Chekhov did, with no mm-hmm. ill effects... It's like, oh, I don't feel well, but hey, I'm fine. Let's dance. Um, apparently, <laughs> in the 2009 movie, it's uh, when it takes you over, it's cutting through you. <laughs> and, yeah, well, and, and messing it, with your spine. It did go into a different orifice. I mean, Chekhov's went through his ear and kind of wrapped around his brain, which you would think would be worse. Whereas in the 2009 movie, it went in their throat and ate its way out of their stomach. Eh. Right. And found its way to the uh, spine. Right. So, yes. So so that that is a good observation. I made the same one, and I came to the same conclusion as you did. And there you go with more transparent aluminum. They really love that. (laughs) Maybe that's why they had it in this one. Maybe. So that we can see through uh, and see him in that wheelchair. Exactly. I'll have to. I don't remember him where in the. We're gonna see him in the next issue or two, so I'll have to go back and look at those pictures to see if it shows him still sitting there. There you go. Cool. I think you only see him for like the the face and the neck and stuff. I don't think you see him in the chair. But yeah, I could that's all wrong. I remember. That's all I remember. But right. We'll look. All right, you ready to get get moving? I'm ready for the next one. All right. So issue number eleven, the truth about tribbles, part one. Came out in July 2012. Uh, the uh, writer is still Mike Johnson. Artist is Claudia Baldoni. Colorist Ilra Travesi. Letterer is Neil Yutaki. Inspired by the original teleplay Trouble with Tribbles by David Gerald. Creative consultant Roberto Orki. And editor is Scott Dunbar. So the, uh, the first cover, or the uh, main cover... Again, has the big Star Trek swoosh um, in the middle, and inside of it is a is like the profile of Uhura, 
looking at a Tribble, and then behind her we can see Chekhov's face, somewhat obscured by her profile, looking more at her than the uh, Tribble. And then around the swoosh is a shot of the Enterprise, and on the bottom, lots of furry little Tribbles. There's a black and white cover, same exact cover except in black and white. And then there's a photo cover, which is just a headshot of Sulu, looking like he's on the bridge. All right, so we flash back several months ago onto the snow-swept surface of Delta Vega. And Elder Spock and Kirk are working with Scotty and Kinzer to get the transwarp up and running, i.e. the events in Star Trek uh, Eleven. Spock notices the Tribble in the cage and asks Scotty what it eats and why it has not replicated. Scotty thinks this is a very odd question and says there's nothing here for it to replicate with except for Kinzer. Scotty wonders why Spock is asking such a question, but Kirk gets them back on track and they start working on the transwarp. So we flash to the present. Scotty and Chekhov are at the transporter pad on the Enterprise. They are in contact with Scotty's nephew on Earth. Uh, his nephew's name is Chris, Chris Scott. And then they beam Scotty's pet Tribble to Earth via the transwarp. The process is a success, but Chekhov fears that they have broken several quarantine laws by doing this. And they also don't have the captain's permission. Scotty brushes off all these concerns, saying that it furthers the achievement of science, so everything will be fine. No sooner has he said this than the red alert klaxons start to blare, and they head to the bridge to get their punishments. So we have a shot of the Enterprise hanging in space with a red floating nebula behind it. Uh, the captain's log informs us that they have recently encountered a bird of prey and are in pursuit. Scotty and Chekhov arrive on the bridge, and Scotty immediately starts begging for forgiveness. Kirk, not knowing what the heck Scotty's blabbering about, tells him to get to engineering and they can talk about whatever he's done later. Kirk tries to contact the Klingons, but Ahura is only able to get one word, execution, out of the garbled exchange. The Klingon vessel soon goes to warp, and they lose the trail. Spock suggests that they should go to see what the Klingons were doing on this side of the neutral zone instead of giving pursuit. Spock scans a nearby planet, and he locates several examples of advanced technology on the surface. Kirk and Spock believe that these might be what the Klingons have left, and they decide to beam a team down to investigate. Kirk, Spock, Scotty, and Chekhov are on the transporter pad wearing some space-age-looking Power Ranger outfits. Chekhov is a little concerned since this is his first away mission. Kirk tells him that it'll be good for him to get out of the bridge. They soon dissolve and reappear on the surface of a very alien planet with large vines and flower pods everywhere. They start to venture into the vegetation when Scotty finds a trio of Tribbles. He ignores the captain's warnings about not touching anything, and he picks up one of the little guys. When he goes down to return the Tribble to his two companions, he is shocked to find that there are now five Tribbles on the rock. Chekhov reminds the team that they need to try to find the Klingon device and not pet little furballs. They clear the forest and find a huge plain 
with tribbles all over the place, as far as the eye can see. In the middle of this wide open area is a Klingon bomb of some sort. They try to figure out why the Klingons would do this, and Spock reminds us that they received a garbled communication about, quote, sworn enemy of the Empire, unquote. At the time, they thought this was in reference to the Federation, but perhaps it's about these little furballs. Kirk thinks that Spock is joking, and then Spock points out that the furballs could overrun a planet if they did indeed reproduce asexually and as fast as Scotty had just witnessed. Scotty has been using this time to look over the device with Chekhov's help, and they have confirmed that it is indeed a bomb. Kirk orders Scotty and Chekhov to defuse it as they hear a sound off in the distance, and he and Spock get their phasers out to investigate. What they find is a huge animal walking through the tribbles and scooping them up into its mouth with long facial appendages. They speculate that this is the natural predator of the tribbles, and the need for their fast reproduction cycle is due to the creature's incredible appetite. Kirk gets a little too close to this grazing animal, and the creature bites down on his arm with some fierce-looking teeth. Spock is able to stun the creature, and somehow neither the suit nor Kirk's arm is damaged in any way. The noise that the creature made when it was stunned must have made its way to the rest of the herd, because suddenly several of the creatures start heading their way. Scotty and Chekhov work as fast as they can on the bomb. Chekhov whispers to Scotty what might have happened to the Tribble they beamed to Earth. Scotty tells him that if anything had happened with his nephew, that they would have been contacted by now. Because his nephew's a good boy. And then the final page shows Starfleet headquarters with tribbles all over the ground and attached up the side of the building as well. To be continued. Oh my gosh! Those, uh, those incredibly prolifically uh, reproducing tribbles. Yes, they're very fertile. They are fertile myrtles. <laughs> so, before we get into the actual comic, uh, is this the one that you had a comment about the cover with Chekhov's face? Yes, just that he looks like a lovesick puppy looking over at Ohura. Yeah. Doesn't he? And so that's obviously an homage to the episode Trouble with Tribbles, because isn't it Chekhov and Ohura that meet, um, what was his name? Something Jones. Yeah, the traitor. That, yeah, that's just like Henry Mudd, except not Harry ah, Mudd. Harry Mudd, yeah. <laughs> Only a different actor. That's right. right. Yeah, um, but I didn't... So, was Chekhov actually displaying some kind of crush on Ahura in the original Todd's episode? I don't know. He took her to a bar. <laughs> I, thought they were, I thought they were just on shore leave together. But... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, in this one, he looks a little like a lovesick puppy dog. Right. But yes, I, I think you're right. It probably does have something to do with their little trip down to uh, to that bar where they first encountered the Tribbles. So, and that's where the likenesses between that episode and this issue end. Yes. <laughs> yes, so um, the title is The Truth About Tribbles, and, and I think to some degree... They had that title because, as we will see in this issue and the next, we get to learn a lot about Tribbles. 
Um, some things we knew already, but then there's more things that we learn about. I mean, because we're there at the Tribbles' home world. At least I assume that's their home world. And uh, it's kind of interesting. Well, they have a natural predator here, so maybe it is their home world. Yeah, seems to be. Right. I thought seeing the, <laughs> the, the last shot showing Starfleet Academy and the Golden Gate uh, overrun with Tribbles. I thought that was kind of entertaining. Sure. I mean, they're, 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 they're like clouds of them stuck to the Golden Gate, which I think is interesting. I didn't know they had the ability to crawl like Spider-Man, but um, it's, uh, it's cute. It's fun. And uh, Yeah, I didn't notice them on the Golden Gate, but you're right. There's like they look like clusters of like mold or bacteria or something, or body hair or something, armpit right. or something. But yeah, they're just hanging out there, stuck to the walls or the pylons, whatever. And I and I and I'm I'm happy to have seen their natural predator. Um, so kind of like a rhino, but you know, like like a vacuum cleaner, like they're just just hovering, you're know, sucking them up like a vacuum cleaner. Yeah, I kind of like those appendages on his face that it would just like just scoop them up and toss them in. <laughs> exactly, it's... they're like popcorn. Right, and then when you actually saw its mouth, it it didn't look like the harmless herbivore or or whatever he's supposed to be right. anymore. I mean, it, it that that's when it kind of lost it with me. Yeah, it's just like why would he have those nasty looking teeth when he exactly all he was chewing up uh, tribbles tribbles. Yeah, it's not like he's got to rip them. Right. I mean, he's just going to swallow them. Swallow them whole. And yeah. those teeth look look more like a carnivore that would have to rip uh, you know, rip meat or something. But. Right. Yeah, no, when I saw it just grazing on the ground, I pictured it kind of like a whale, you know, just going through the ocean, you know, eating up the you know, plankton and stuff. I, I w- and then when it showed its mouth, I was like, oh, now it looks more like the stupid monster thing that's in Star Trek 11 the ice oh, monster right. which I also didn't like right 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 yeah, yeah. so anyways and yeah, why did it, it not it, bite through his arm just tell me that well it'd be like like Kirk says these suits are designed to handle tougher stuff than this so it it's like broken you know if it didn't break through the skit break through the fabric the force alone would have snapped his arm in half uh, should have. It should have. I, I agree with that. Uh, and the things are skin tight. Right. I mean, they they it, they they look like uh, a gay chorus review or something. I mean, it is like skin tight, very thin material, or I mean, very, very thin looking material. But of course, it could be very thin, but still be incredibly strong, like chain mail. But yeah. um, yeah. I mean, that, that's what they're trying to tell you. That's what they're trying to insinuate. I think. Yeah. Well, it was. Stupid. I, I didn't get like it. it. Yeah, I did not like it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it, it does, it, and their outfits don't even look as good as they did in Star Trek Eleven with those, you know, the space jumping suits. Oh, the space jumping suits. Uh, yeah, I, I think these things are too skinny. I mean, I, I'm sorry. I, I, you know, you know, forget about a NASA age uh, space suit. Of course not. You don't want that. But. Right. Um, I do agree that those uh, space jumping suits they had in the 2009 movie, I thought mm-hmm. that was uh, – I think that was like the right amount of um, of material it looked like to me. Right. Where, the, where these look like, like, like dancing leotards. 
or Power. I mean, I, I, oh, I know Power you Ranger. probably don't watch a lot of Power Rangers. No, never did. But I mean, when they're standing on that transporter pad with the bright gold, bright blue, and bright red, <laughs> you know, spandex-looking thing with the big fishbowl helmet. Right. To me, they look just like Power Rangers. Oh, there you go. So and what is just like? Oh, come on. So what did did Power Rangers say something before they went into action, kind of like Thundercats used to, or something? Uh, what, what, what did they say? I don't know. The, oh. You're right. They did say something. Let's go, Power Rangers, go! I don't know. Oh, okay. I, I, I didn't Sorry. watch it. it. It it came out. Sorry, I thought you were a fan. No, it came out when I was already in high school. I knew it existed, you know, but I never watched. wasn't a big wasn't a big uh, watcher of of that show. Right. Cool. Okay. Although I had seen an episode. I'm not going to lie to you. I've seen it. Because <laughs> I like Godzilla and that kind of, you know, Japanese monster type stuff. And, right. And they and Power Rangers was just a redub of a Japanese TV show that's in that same genre. Right. So I did watch a few episodes, but it was it was not doing it for me. Yeah. Anyways. Right. All right. Can I point out some plot points that I, I question? Please go right ahead. So they get a garbled transmission from this Klingon ship. Okay. She says the only thing I got out of that was execution. Okay, great. Later, Spock says that they had enemy of the Empire. Right. Was that a separate transmission or did she really get more than just the one word that first time? Because that really threw me for a loop. I was like, what is he talking about? And then I even <laughs> went back and reread it. I was like, did I miss a paragraph? Did I miss something else? Right. Uh, but no, that, she says, I got one word, execution. And then he comes back and says, oh, I got all this out of it. I just forgot <laughs> to tell you. Psych. Yeah, so you you didn't catch that either? Or? Not really. Okay. And then the other I, thing. I, yeah, I thought the oh, whole Klingon thing was kind of weird. Uh, uh, well, yeah, okay, so the Klingon is the reason they went down to the planet or whatever. Okay, so right. fine, I, I got that. But it's like, just say, well, what were they really doing? I mean, were they really going to blow up the Tribbles? I mean, I, I know from the original Taz series, uh, Tribbles and Klingons do not like each other. Right. I know that. But it's like, well, they're on this planet. I mean, unless you're going to build a colony on the planet, who cares? How are they an enemy... <laughs> of the Empire. I mean, you're... Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> well, I'm sure some Klingon had one as a pet, and it took over the whole planet, and now they have to destroy every tribal in existence. <sighs> it's for the honor of the Empire. Yeah. Right. I don't know. Yeah, th- those tribals do not like the, the ruffle furs. Okay. If you, if you remember that ep- that alien spotlight. I think you said you read it. The tribal oh, yeah. alien spotlight. I, I don't remember them. the tribbles calling them ruffle furs. Yeah, the, the, the tribbles referred to humans as soft hands. And, right. No, warm hands. And they referred to tr- uh, Klingons as ruffle furs. <laughs> anyway. I, I don't remember that. But, yeah, yeah. That, was just, that was just a random comment. Right. All right. So, uh, yeah. And I mean, we'll talk about it maybe more next next issue. It's funny that that Kirk is really concerned about this bomb. Yeah. When earlier Spock said there's several of these bombs all over In this multiple. Planet. Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. That, it, it, that part of it 
I agree with you. Does not right. does not make a lot of sense. So it's not going to spoil anything if I tell you we never hear about any other bomb but this one. No. For these two two issues. Yeah, and they only take that one. Exactly. They only, they only take the one. And what do they do with it? You know, I thought I thought for a while they were going to say, oh well, we could use this to blow up. <laughs> It, it turns out that it doesn't actually kill them. It does something blah, and that's how we're going to resolve the Earth infestation is with the uh, Klingon device. And it's like, no, they didn't even do that. It's just, just like, okay. All right, well, let's talk about that more next issue. Oh, sorry. I'm kind of ruining things. Ah, yeah. Sorry. All right, and then the other plot point that I thought was uh, kind of a leap, you know, along with uh, Spock's somehow being able to translate more of the message than Ohora was, was right. Scotty just picks up a triple, and then when he puts it down, he noticed that there's five instead of two uh, on the rock. Right. Okay. He never says that they reproduced. He never says they had babies while I was holding this other one. He just says, oh, I didn't notice these other guys. Yeah, right. And then later, Spock's just like, oh, well, the Klingons probably hate them because they reproduce so fast asexually, and they would take over a whole planet in a matter of, you know, hours or a short amount of time. Right. Who the hell said that, Spock? Nobody said that. You. What, what do you... <laughs> yeah, we know it because we've seen that episode, but how do you know it? <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> well, he's, that... he's doing that Spock extrapolation thing based on what he sees. He probably saw the episode in the other in the other continuity. Exactly. Like, uh, I can't tell you this, but uh, I've seen this before. Yeah. Anyway, well, I didn't really. Yeah, and, and they they address this a little bit in the next issue, but you know, I know they had stuff to do. I mean, they had bigger fish to fry with dealing with Nero and everything. But it's like, couldn't old Spock have said something more than than what he did uh, about the Tribble? I mean, he must have. Like said, hey, there's a triple here. Uh, <laughs> if you ever move it out of this cold climate, and by the way, I don't think they, I don't uh, think they I, ever don't, found don't out it. cold climate had anything don't to do with it. it. Oh, that's sorry. the next issue. Sorry, but the thing is, couldn't he have said something more? Yes, no, there should have been more. And oh. I mean, oh, you have a triple there, and it hasn't reproduced. Oh, okay. Well, you guys have fun with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. All right, so not to get into some of this that's going to happen next issue, but we do have a flashback from several months ago, and then we flash forward to today or whatever it is. Are we to assume that the Enterprise at some point went back to Delta Vega, picked up Kinzer, and Scotty picked up the uh, Tribble at that time? So for the last 12 issues, the Tribble's been on board the Enterprise along with Kinzer and Scotty? Is that a, a fair... Yes. Assumption? Okay. Yes. Well, then uh, I'll have... Or, or you know he had Kinzer with him. Right. Well, no, but... Hmm. Kinzer and Spock stayed on Delta Vega when right. Kirk and, Spock and Scotty were beamed away. So yep. eventually somebody came back and picked yes, up the three exactly. Because we saw... Well, yes, because we saw both Kinzer and Spock later mm -hmm. in the same uh, film. Right. And then now we're seeing uh, in this issue the triple. Yes. Right. So yeah. I'm going to assume that the Tribble's been on the Enterprise as long as Kinzer has. That's just going to be my assumption, and exactly. we'll talk about it next issue. And um, they have had some adventures going on. Right. So why hasn't the Tribble reproduced before now? You're spoiling my I was going to say next issue, but yeah, mm -hmm. I have the same question. Yep. 
Well. Anyway, um, let me see. Because they it's... are asexual in their reproduction. That's but... true. They are. Okay, real quick. At the beginning of the comic, it seemed like both Chekhov and Scotty didn't want to beam down. Or definitely Chekhov this one. But Scotty in a previous one. Right. So it seems like we've got, so far in this comic book series, McCoy doesn't want to go down to a planet. Chekhov doesn't want to go down to a planet. And Scotty doesn't want to go down to a planet. So they're all kind of like scaredy cats. And right. it's like, okay, so you're admitting that, you know, they're a little bit more human or something. But it's like, nobody ever had a problem with going down before. I mean, Barkley had a problem with trans being transported in the next gen. But in the original show, nobody had a problem with being transported and going on away missions. Did no. they? I don't think so. No, and if anything, I think Chekhov liked to go. Yeah. You know, because so... he wanted that screen time. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So I don't know. I just I just think they're making them kind of wimpy. And and I think I might have said this before, and I'm gonna definitely say at the end of the second or the what when when this story arc wraps up in the next issue. Right. And I think I said this earlier too, but I don't like all the things they're doing with Scotty. Dumbing him down. Dumbing him down. And basically, he's almost like Gilligan or something in some cases. <laughs> it's like, it's the dumb guy who ends up, you know, getting the fly in the ointment and, you know, causing problems that they, the, the rest of the crew has to dig out of in the, you know, in the rest of the, uh, the story. Right. And it's like, damn it, you can make him a, 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 an engineering genius, a savant in that area. But it's like, don't make him totally inept in every other aspect. I don't know. Right? No, I'm with you 100%. I'm not crazy about that, but whatever. Okay, that's all I have. All right, and then my last comment, I guess, could go for either one. But what did you think about the whole Scotty's nephew thing? My first well, thought was that this was supposed to be a, a nod to Star Trek II with yes. Scotty's nephew. I agree. Different but, name? Different name. Yeah, because oh, they don't name. mention his name here, <clears throat> but in the next issue, they call him Chris Scott. Right. Scotty's nephew in Star Trek II was Peter Preston, so... Oh, good point. Good it, was point. His, well, it was his sister's kid. <clears throat> Maybe it's another one of those examples where things aren't 100% the same in both of the uh, the time streams or something. Who knows? <laughs> but, but, the, but the guy would have been... No. No, he would have been born after Nero came back, so... Uh, well, and it would be his. Mm -hmm. This is his brother's kid, where Peter Preston was his sister's kid. So, well, it's possible that he could have more than multiple, one? multiple siblings and multiple nephews. But I just thought it was odd if you're going to at least acknowledge he has a nephew, and it would be about the right right age. Right. Uh, why not? You know, keep yeah. it. Why make the mistake on the name? But I guess they wanted to have the last name Scott, so they were just like, yeah, nobody's gonna notice. So this is another bit of thing they did. This is another that would, <clears throat> that would keep it is that would keep maybe more the casual reader liking things. But if you really took a look at the uh, history and what's gone before, it doesn't doesn't one hundred percent fly. Right. Huh? Exactly. 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 All right. That was it. Okay. Well. Shall we go on and find out what happens with these triples? Which, by the way, no one's called them a triple yet. That's true. They have not. That's right. Not They're just yet. those little fur balls. Those little fur balls. Or do they? Well, let's find out if they ever do. Huh? Huh? 
Hey, I, I, I didn't mention it, but did you notice they had a, a quote from David Gerald at the beginning of the issue? Uh, no. No. So he wrote, I've loved comic books all my life, and it's a big thrill to see that the original oh, Tribble right. story still holds up and has inspired such a wonderful retelling. Oh, cool. Yeah, right there. It's right beneath the, cre- the, um, the yeah. credits. I thought that was kind of cool. That's very cool. Huh. I didn't even notice it. Damn. I, I would still love to do an interview with him just to ask him, you know, you know, he wrote that Bandai episode for the original series that later mm-hmm. got adapted into one of the mangas. Yeah. Does he know that that same story was used by Peter Pan Records with that little um, cat thing that uh, would control people's emotions too? Oh right. I would just I would just love to ask him. Did you have anything to do with that story? Excuse me, sir. And if not, did you know they stole it? <laughs> thirty years ago, they they stole your they stole your idea thirty years ago. Damn just it! Thought you'd want to know. <laughs> just to mention. But anyways. Hmm. All right, go ahead. There you go. Okay, on to issue number 12, uh, Truth About Tribbles, Part 2, published date August 2012. The creative team, many of the same people, but not all the same. We have uh, writer Mike Johnson, based on the original teleplay by David Gerald. Uh, artist is Claudia Balboni. Colorist is Ilara Traversi. Letterer is Neil Yukitaki. Editor is Scott Dunbuyer. And creative consultant, again, as always, Roberto Orki. I think you got the colorist wrong. Oh, did I? Hmm. Yeah, it's okay. Arena uh... Florine. You said transversi or something? Uh, yeah, you're right. Uh, Ariana Florine. Ariana Florine. That's the right person. Okay. Right. Okay, sorry. Good point. Thank you, Donovan, for fixing that. Um... Okay, the primary cover shows the Starfleet swoosh in the center with Kirk's head and upper torso sticking out of a pile of tribbles. He has a small smile on his face. At the bottom is Scotty's head and shoulders with a serious, maybe somewhat confused look on his face. The background of the cover shows space. The Enterprise, several planets, several circular navigational grids, counting off degrees, and part of a fuzzy ball on uh, on the top behind the franchise name Star Trek. The alternative cover RIA is the black and white version of the regular cover. Alternate cover RIB is a photo cover showing Spock uh, somewhere within the Enterprise. The issue opens on the surface of planet Iota Germaniorium 4. Mr. Negative Scotty is calling Chekhov Pavel and saying his final goodbyes. Kirk and Spock are firing on the six attacking triple vacuum cleaner predators. Kirk asks Scotty for a little optimism and an ETA for when he can disarm the Klingon bomb. Scotty gives no estimate, saying they did not cover Klingon detonator design at Starfleet Academy. As the battle rages, the carpet of tribbles at their feet begins to rise until it's at their knees. Spock observes the presence of the predators has accelerated their spontaneous asexual reproduction. Suddenly, the bomb starts to speak Klingon. From the ship, Ohura confirms it's a countdown and tells them to get out of there. Ohura says, wait, 
It's asking for a command if they want to shut it down. She tells them to say, Mev, talk, sib, which Kirk, Chekhov, and Scotty do. It worked. The bomb is diffused. They beam up to the ship, and they take the Klingon bomb with them. As they enter the bridge, Uhura informs them they have a call from Admiral Pike at Starfleet Command. Pike tells them, small furry creatures are all over the Starfleet Academy grounds and making their way rapidly through San Francisco. And they came from the Enterprise. Scotty's nephew spilled the beans and said it was all Scotty's idea. Kirk says they will work on a way to control the creature's multiplicative proclivities from the creature's home planet. Pike says they had better, or they may be forced to start exterminating them, which goes against the Federation Charter. Later, in a conference room around a normal-looking tan table, Kirk, Spock, O'Hara, and Chekhov listens to Scotty explaining how his triple beaming was an experiment meant to help retrieve Admiral Archer's beagle. How was he supposed to know that the quiet furry little critter was such a prodigious reproducer? Scotty went on to suggest that old Spock seemed to know something about the critters and they should ask him. Young Spock discounts the notion since old Spock said he would not give information about the future that could affect how events unfold. Yeoman Rand breaks in over the intercom to tell Captain one of the furry critters has apparently lodged in the Klingon device since it was apparently beamed up to the ship. The furry critter did what it does best and is now all over engineering where the Klingon device was beamed to. They lock down engineering to prevent any of them from getting out and McCoy and Spock start analyzing some specimens. McCoy gives his report to Kirk in sickbay. McCoy says it does not have a mouth, but it absorbs food from the bottom. It seems to like some form of wheat Spock brought up from the surface. It has a very short lifespan, only a matter of days. So much of its biology is geared to reproduction that they burn out with a short lifespan. Kirk observes that if they can stop their reproduction, they will just die out in a matter of days. Spock says so far, they have no way to stop their reproduction, and there is no evidence of the creatures in engineering slowing down their reproductive rate. However, Spock says, he has a hypothesis that he will need Mr. Scott's help to test out. Later, they put Scotty into engineering, dressed for cold weather. The plan is, Scotty will go into the triple-infested engineering section and decrease the temperature to simulate the conditions at the Delta Vega outpost, where his sole triple stayed single and alive for months. The experiment proceeds, and Spock reports a significant decrease in physiological activity from within engineering. That accomplished, Scotty pushes the temperature lower than that at the Delta Vega outpost when suddenly he feels the tribbles pulling at his legs. When he reaches down and pulls, up comes Mr. Kenser, Scotty's buddy from Delta Vega. Kenser climbs up a ladder to get a view safely above all the tribbles. Spock reports the creature's bioactivity has stabilized at a level just above the test subject prior to its death. Kirk orders O'Hara to send a message to Starfleet reporting their findings and that cold will stop their reproduction. Later, Kirk's log reports the resolution 
of the situation. The frozen triples in engineering were safely being backed to the surface, and engineering is back to being fully functional. Admiral Pike reports their use of cryospray on the creatures allowed them to freeze them and get them into storage. Pike goes on to say that some of them have been sent to Starfleet Intelligence for study. Kirk asks why them rather than the scientific branch. In response, all Pike says quickly is that there are plenty of excellent xenobiologists on staff in intelligence. Scotty and his nephew's punishment was minimal, given that their contributions to solving the problem were great and the fact that Scotty's nephew brought it to the attention of the authorities in the first place very quickly. Pike orders Kirk to keep a closer eye on his people in the future, and then he closes the channel. Later in sickbay, McCoy reports his dead specimen continues to be quite dead, but he intends to hold on to it to run more tests. He might be able to learn something more about it. Kirk asks, what are these things called, anyway? McCoy says, if he had to name them, he would call them trouble. Later still in the transporter room, Scotty is angrily talking to himself about how he has been put on report and ordered to cease work on transwarp beaming. He mutters to himself how the moratorium on beaming living things by the method is halting his great contribution to mankind's push into space. Head in hands, he accidentally hits a transporter control with his elbow, which initiates a beaming cycle. Quite by accident, Admiral Archer's beagle materializes on the transporter pad. Scotty goes from being dumbfounded to being elated as he gives himself a pat on the back. Scotty, you're a wacky guy. The end. So, what'd you think about Porthos's uh, cameo? Did you know it's Porthos? Yeah. Okay. Now, I gotta say, Porthos... Did, did Archer have multiple Porthoses? Uh, you're right. It, it never actually says his name is Porthos, I guess. And also, I mean, I, Beagles can live to like 16, 17 years old. Right. So, I don't know. You know, I'm just, I'm just questioning how much time went by. Well, it couldn't be Porthos, because a lot more time went by. I mean, right. Archer's got to be old, right? Right, right. By this let's point. just say it's a descendant of Porthos. How about there that? There you go. And maybe, maybe he's calling him Porthos D or something. Who knows? <laughs> anyway, he's really cool. He's, he's a cute little uh, drawing of the pup right. uh, on the pad. But I got to say, um, really? I mean, I, I know. I mean, okay, so I, I got to assume he was still working on it on the sly a little bit. Uh, that's why he was in the transporter room. And he might have made some settings, some setting changes. But uh, the fact that he just, like, accidentally puts his elbow on and pop, here comes Porthos out of the ether is right. like, you know, either something more else, more is going on here than we were shown in the story or that's just weak. Agreed. In my opinion. It's just, it's just cutesy. It's cutesy and just, yeah. No, I, I'm agreeing with you and the main reason why I'm agreeing with you is if you read the 2009 novelization by Alan Dean Foster of the of right. Star Trek 11, it ends with that scene. With right. After they're getting ready to leave and Spock and them are all separated, the transporter yeah. bed fires up and 
Porthos appears and walks off the transporter pad, and right. then through the through the Enterprise. Yeah, and so, that was even weaker. I mean, it was cute and everything, but nobody was around, right? It was cute, right? And it was just like, okay, well, you know, it was it was tacked on, and it was there just to, you know, right. I don't know. It, it was it was a cute little ending. Um, and then here they did it again. So not only is it a weak ending, but it's like. You've already done this once. I mean, I know that this, well, the, the comic book people didn't do the novel, but if you yeah. if and you it, are a fan and you've read both, you're going to be like, oh, you're just redoing it. Same exact joke. Yeah. And maybe it's because a lot of people didn't read the book. I mean, the adaptation, you know, the sure. novel. I mean, I did, so I know the scene you're talking about, but um, yeah. No, I, I'm with you. But, but I mean, even when we were read, or I don't know when we didn't read it together, but when I read it, I thought it was a, a weak little joke at the end of the book that didn't really make sense. But right. so that's why when they did it again here, I'm like, it still just doesn't work. Why, why do you keep forcing this joke? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although I, I am happy to see the beagle back because I've got two beagles and it's nice to see him back. Yeah. I, I would like a beagle only because of enterprise. Well, as I said before, maybe even on the show, <laughs> the, the reason our first dog we got was a beagle is because I that was my preference because of Enterprise because I thought Porthos was cool right but Porthos wasn't a barking maniac demon like my beagles he just likes cheese he likes cheese and he hangs around I mean there's no way a real beagle would go like that <laughs> they like to be you know they like to be out and playing, and they love to bark. Oh, my God, they love to bark. <laughs> anyway. Anyways. So. So, uh, yeah. So, let me just let me just say, Scotty's very imprecise. I, I know he's played by Simon Pegg. So, the natural tendency with Simon Pegg is you want to give him, you, make, you want to make him a little funny. Sure. But, again, um. I'm not crazy about what they're doing with Scotty. Uh, I mean, there another example here. He's about to go into the frigid engineering area, but he says he's got mittens on. And it's like, you don't have mittens on. You've got gloves on. I see fingers in your garment. It's it's not a mitten. It's like, gee, Scotty. It's like, and then he's be like, a little precise, will you? Do Vulcans even have mittens? No. Oh. And I thought I was like, that's just a weird thing to say. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So, Damn. and that last page where he's all like, "Oh, they won't let me test on you, uh, living subjects, whatever." I'm like, "That's not a very Scotty thing to say either." No, that you're, but you're upset that you can't, <clears throat> uh, you know, experiment on living things. Yeah. Well, but but the thing is. They proved it worked. I mean, yeah, they had the problem with the Beagle, but then Spock told him the extra stuff he needed to know in the 2009 movie, and they successfully beamed two human beings in the Enterprise over vast distances. It's like, it works. So now they're, what, retconning this and saying, well, maybe they don't want to be using transport beaming all the time because it's just going to be too easy. Or something to get out of certain situations or something. I don't know. And so this is how they're going to, you know, put a convenient moratorium on it on something, like right. the moratorium they had on using, uh, you know, uh, shield technology or cloaking devices. 
you know, right, until a right. defiant came along. So it's like, I don't know. I'm down with the idea that you don't want to make things too easy for the crew and everything, and cloaking devices and transwarp technology might do that, right. or transwarp beaming technology might right. do that. But um, I don't know. It just seems like they're just. I, it just seems like it's force. Anyway. Right. Yeah, no. And he did it at the beginning. I mean, he transported the uh, the, the Tribble all yeah. that way. There you go. And so it, it obviously still works. Yeah, and, and the Tribble was fine. I mean, he was so fine, he ends up overrunning San Francisco with his progeny. Yeah. Which, so, uh, I don't know. Yeah, so can we talk about that real quick? So you kind of alluded to it in the last issue. Why did the little Tribble not procreate? Uh, for the last several months while he was on the Enterprise. On the ship. That's right, right. If the only reason why he wasn't procreating on Delta Vega was that he was cold. Yep. I agree. And yeah. Yeah, so th- that didn't make sense. I mean, unless no. Scotty keeps his, his room really cold for no reason. Yeah. And mind you, that's not as egregious as Indiana Jones traveling hundreds of miles on the top of a submarine. He wasn't on top. He he got in. But no, he didn't. How did he get in? No, I'm sorry. That's wrong. Opened up the hatch, jumped right oh, in. Oh, oh, yeah, into the middle of a bunch of Germans looking at him, going, "Vazizis," or that's, that's probably Russian. Anyway, <laughs> the, the main thing is, it's you know, it's not as egregious as that, which is terrible. But uh, but yeah, they, they this one is is not as obvious. If you think about it, you start asking these questions. But, you know, a casual reader wouldn't think about it. Well, the the fact that it's a plot point, I don't see how you would not see it. I mean, he, he stresses over and over again. I, I've i never had a problem with it the whole time I've owned it. Yep. And you did just say that you've been on the Enterprise for several months. Um, yep. No, I agree. So. Did you have him in the refrigerator? What's the deal? Exactly. Exactly. And then I, I really did not like them just running around with, you know, some – Liquid nitrogen, squirting them, freezing them, or whatever they were doing. <laughs> right. That seems stupid and weak. And so, and and quite frankly, so they beam them off the Enterprise after they reduce the temperature enough. It's like, is there some reason you couldn't have beamed them off before? Well, yeah, Scotty did in the uh, original series episode. Exactly. He beamed them all over to the to, to the Klingons. Right. Well, there'll be no triple at all. Mm-hmm. But. <laughs> So why, you know, why'd they have to freeze them first? I right. mean, and why didn't Starfleet do it? I mean, I don't know. I mean, the only thing I can think of is that these reproduce so much faster than the ones on the uh, Trouble with Tribbles episode that uh, maybe you can't get a lock on them because they're... Moving around too much? On their little legs? Well, I don't think so. Not just moving around, but their insides are just squirting out babies. I don't know. But I mean, <laughs> in the original episode... The trouble with triples. The reason why they reproduce so fast was because they got a hold of that super grain, right? Oh, wow. So there was that uh, super grain that was at the space station. Well, but it was clean. it was food. But it was supposed to be like this super food well, that, no, that it, kicked I, them in overdrive. I thought quadro what made quadro super is that it grows well. Oh, okay. So you can get big crop yields. I don't think it makes you into super triple. I thought it made them into super triples. <laughs> I don't think so. I think, I think their point there was, there's a lot of food there, and if there's a lot of food, they're going to eat a lot of it, and they're going right. to start pumping them out. Which mm, is another okay. thing. It's like, okay, so maybe they got big fat cells, 
in the in the in the reboot or something. But you know, where are you getting all the food in uh, to reproduce if yeah. you're in engineering? I mean, well, and that candy and that bar wrappers. I don't know. Yeah, and that line where he's like, "They really like this wheat that Spock beamed up." When did Spock beam up wheat? Uh, he could have. He could have done that. I mean, he could have grabbed some. He as, as part of when they were on the planet, as right. par, as you know, as part of their survey or whatever. I mean, while he was shooting at those big vacuum cleaner predators, uh, I mean, he was making all these like observations and stuff, and he might have noticed that. Well, this seems to be what these little suckers are eating. Let me take a sample. <laughs> Maybe it's possible. But and he brought know. enough to feed a whole bunch of them. It just uh, well, weird. I don't know. Yeah. Well, it definitely is not enough to explain how all those those guys in engineering what they're eating. Right. Yeah, no. All right. And so the ones that are on Earth, once they sprayed it with the cryo freeze, yes. what'd they do with them? Excellent question. Um, all we know is that at least some of them, if not all of them, were given over to uh, Starfleet Intelligence for all their many xenobiologists that are in Starfleet Intelligence. Oh, yeah. But the thing is, uh, I, I, I'm going to the same place you are, I think. I mean, there were there were probably like millions of the damn things. Did they all go to um, Starfleet Intelligence? Um, if you really did not want to kill them, and if you love them and everything, and you know, and you are the Lily White uh, Federation, wouldn't you want to transport them back to their home world? Or to a Klingon ship, sure. <laughs> <laughs> but Scotty wasn't Scotty wasn't on Earth, so you never know. Yeah, so yeah, well, you need to beam them. They only have a, or you need to transport them. They have a, you know, this whole revelation that they have this super short lifespan, which which seemed kind of an odd thing to start talking about. Yeah. Um. Okay, so you know you're gonna put them on ice, transport them to this home world, maybe, and, and deposit them, or just keep them on ice in a big warehouse somewhere on earth but will they die still in a couple of days because i mean scotty had his for a long time so when they're cold they still purr and everything but they don't eat or die it seemed weird right and or at least inconsistent yep and that's the other option you can let them die naturally and maybe that's what they did but so, that's like mm. cooled them off so that they were alive but they didn't eat or reproduce and let them die naturally. Right. But there's a problem with that because when they were cooled down at Delta Vega with Scotty, the thing, I mean, it it, it was alive for months. And right. Months. So well, I don't know how he, long Scotty was there, but it was it was around a long time. Well, he's been, he, it's been months since <clears throat> since Star Trek Eleven. so. Right. There again. It, it, exactly. That, that one triple lived a lot longer than the one McCoy was examining. Oh, maybe it was the uh, quadratriticale he had. <laughs> He's a super triple. Or maybe it's just a huge plot hole. <laughs> That's what it is. That's what it is. All right. And I'm going to I'm gonna tell you, when I first started reading this and, and they were – Spock looked at the triple and asked, you know, why is it not reproducing? My first thought was, oh, these are the tribbles that Sirius Jones uh, genetically altered for more trouble with tribbles, the uh, animated TV series. And I thought maybe they were going to go with with that plot line, but they hmm. they went a completely different route than that too. Hmm. But yeah, there was a, a trouble with triple episodes for the animated series where he 
fixes them so that they don't reproduce. But what happens is that they all merge into one giant super triple and try oh to take God. over. Oh so instead God. of millions of little ones, it was just one giant one. You know, I'm kind of okay with having missed most of those uh, cartoon episodes. <laughs> yeah, it was bad. So, anyways, I, I, but I thought maybe that's where they were going with it when, when, when Scotty's doesn't reproduce, but they, they, they didn't go that route. And you were hoping for it, weren't you? Well, I was just thinking that that would be a kind of a nice little nod to the to the fans that that sat through those cartoons. <laughs> good point good point all right um one last thing about the artwork that i have on page three when spock shoots one of the the vacuum monsters whatever we're calling them right uh it looks like it actually pierces its skin and then has an exit wound on the yes. other side a little blood right cool with a with a phaser with a phaser and and they're supposed to be. I thought they were shooting them with um, on stun. I was too. So I thought that was a little weird. I think that was just a nod to coolness. <laughs> we gotta have blood splatter. Well, yeah. I. What, you're laughing. No, I I think it's just a nod to coolness. That's all. Mm. All right, coolness it is. No, I don't think I, it doesn't make sense. But I'm just saying. Sometimes you do things that are cool if if and if they don't make sense because it's cool, right? Yeah, like like freeze a bunch of tribbles, <sighs> and then don't say what you did with them. Yes. <laughs> All right. So you mentioned Raiders of the Lost Ark when when Pike was talking about you know we sent him over to uh, Starfleet Command or whatever, and uh, intelligence. Yeah, and and Kirk asks, why didn't you let the xenobiologist handle it? Yep. I got a vibe off of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark when when Indiana Jones at the said, end. Yeah, who do you have working on it? Top men. Top. Who men? Men. Right? Top <laughs> men. So uh, when Pike says, "We have great xenobiologists." <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. I, I I I got that vibe. Yeah, yeah. There are great xenobiologists in Starfleet intelligence, which makes me laugh. Yeah, yeah, but but that was cool because again, you're reinforcing the idea that Starfleet and maybe the Federation not so lily white anymore, right? So uh, why would intelligence be doing this? Because uh, they're trying to figure out the Klingon connection. They think they might be able to pull in aliens and try to use it as some kind of weapon. The Tribbles is some kind of weapon. Mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. There you go. You don't need facehuggers and those type of xenomorphs. Just shoot over a couple of fur, fur balls. Exactly. Hmm. All right. Anything else? I think we unfortunately we beat this one up quite a bit. Well, I don't yes, think we, we were quite but, as positive on these two issues as we have been. No, but uh, even don't get us wrong, or don't get me wrong. I think you would agree, though. Uh, I liked all three comics. I have the four, if you count the first part one of the Archons one. Right. Um. I thoroughly enjoyed them. It's just it's hard not to point out some of the problems. Yeah, and I, and maybe because they went off on their own so much in this one, instead mm-hmm. of sticking somewhat with the uh, with the script or at least the initial story, right. maybe that's why we're seeing so many plot holes. 
but uh, you know, as far as the, the this this series, I think this was the first one that we've noticed any type of major plot holes in. Uh, I mean, this was the first one that really stood out as you know, you know, where's Spot coming up with these conclusions uh, of the reboot of the ongoing? Right, it's, right. It's, it's the it's the one that has the most of them that I can think of right now. Than the other, you know, yeah. nine that yeah. we've done. Well, you're probably right. Probably right. I don't think any of them were perfect, though. But that's not what you're saying, so. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying right. this one seemed to have a lot of them. <laughs> true, true. <laughs> but no, I, I agree with you. Still enjoyed it. Yeah. All right, so uh, anything else? We can jump to the Expanded Universe stuff? Yes, let's jump. All right, so we're not going to go into a lot of this because I have not read most of these books um, because I don't want to be spoiled um, as far as uh, what they cover. So in June of 2012, there was a Starfleet Academy novel called The Ascension or Assassination Game by Alan Grays. This is the fourth book of the Starfleet Academy series, and it's uh, based in the... Um, the new continuity with Kirk being at the uh, Starfleet Academy, um, you know, within the uh, 2009 movie. Right. I read the first one. Um, I really liked it. I have not had a chance to read the uh, the next three, but so far it was good. Good. Uh, the next one is uh, Raise the Dawn, which is a post-Nemesis book. It's the second book of... Uh, a series called the Typhon Pact. Oh. And it's called Star Trek Raise the Dawn instead of Star Trek The Next Generation, even though it's based in the Next Generation timeline because it it merges the original – or not the original series, Next Generation, Titan, Voyager, Deep Space Nine all into one. So they didn't really label it as, as any of those. So uh-huh. it's kind of a crossover book. Uh-huh. Um, and then in July, uh, there was a new Titan novel called Fallen Gods by Michael A. Martin. And in August, a Voyager um, novel called The Eternal Tide by Kristen Bayer. Huh. And uh, all of those series, um, they, they take place chronologically. So, you know, Fallen Gods happens after Raise the Dawn, so... I haven't been able to just sit down and start reading all the uh, post-Nemesis novels like I would like to. So I'm trying right. not to read the synopsis um, on Memory Beta and Memory Alpha because I still want to. I don't. I, I still want to read them and not be spoiled as far as what happens in the novels before. Right. But uh, of the ones I have read of the post-Nemesis stuff, I have enjoyed it. Good. Yeah, I have not read any of them. And I'd be very interested in seeing what happens after that. Right. Yeah, you should. They're pretty good. You know, because, yeah. uh, um, you know, Chakotay is captain of Voyager with uh, Paris as his second-in-command. Right. Um, Which I found uh, I find odd, but kind of cool. Well, it's kind of cool how they do it. Paris is his first choice, but it's not Starfleet's first choice. So they kind of saddle him with this other guy for a while, and then Paris ends up becoming the first officer. Well, cool. So... It's good. You should read some of them. Cool. And when I yeah. say some of them, you should read up to where I am so I don't spoil what I know. Because <laughs> <laughs> you want to talk but about anyway, it, damn it. Uh, that's why we're not going to talk So, all right. Well, that's it. So I hope you enjoyed our 100th episode of Star Trek Comic Book Review. As we did. 
We did. The, the 100th episode extravaganza, which really wasn't that extravagant. But yeah. hey, yeah, woo! 100! Some sound effects with that little treble guy, you know, since we were talking about his kinfolk. You know, um, if I didn't know better, it would sound to me like you're actually asking for it. So, by, uh... Because you asked for it, yes! We'll, we're going to give you more treble than you'd ever want. Okay, it. thank you, little little fella. You go over there. All right, so next week we'll be back, uh, or next episode. Hope, hopefully it'll be next week. Um, and we're going to be covering, ah, Deep Space Nine. Oh, good. So we're, it's time, Deep Space Nine is making the rotation. Good. Yeah, the the 90s version of Deep Space Nine. Right. So, so that's cool. So now we'll have Deep Space Nine, original series, next generation, every other week. Okay. Okay. Ooh. So that's uh, so the only downside of that is going to be the fact that uh, we have a few weeks to go. Uh, if you if we have any story arcs that uh that can't fit within an episode. That is true. Just like, it, just like Archons. It's like, oh my god. <laughs> of course, yeah, it's an extreme like, example, but... Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, we'll never have to wait three months for the uh, continuation like we did with the Archons. Right. But you know what? That's that's the disadvantage of reading these in somewhat uh, real time. we got to wait for them all to come out. Right. Alright then, so uh, until next week or next episode, we'll talk to you guys later. Sounds great. Thanks for joining us on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music, stories, and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website www.stcomicbookreview.com Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name ST Comic, second name Book Review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.